Hi everyone, welcome to the Loop Podcast. Um, this is the podcast where B2B marketers come to stay in the loop with what is new in today's marketing world and keep up uh, when it comes to marketing to the modern buyer. I'm Vera from Cognizant. I head up the product marketing team and I have a very special guest with me today, uh, Anthony Pieri. Anthony, welcome to the podcast today. Let's kick off by um, introducing yourself for all of those who don't know you. Although I'm, I'm sure most of the product marketers that are listening to us today do know you. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, super excited to be on. And yeah, a little bit about me. I work for Fletch PMM. It's a two-person product marketing consultancy. We primarily work with early stage B2B SaaS startups. Um, and we help them specifically figure out the best way to position their product figure out the best value propositions to actually sell the vision of the product and then take all of that and get it into a really, really clear homepage that the buyers, when they land on it, they understand it. Um, and everyone internally, they have a point of reference of this is how we're positioned and this is really the main arguments of our product to, to get someone to use it. Okay, great. So I have a couple of questions um, straight out the bat. So first of all, why the homepage? Why did you decide to specialize in homepages? So great question. I think you might be the first person who's asked me that. But really, we looked at a lot of different ideas in the beginning. And the first thing we thought about was just helping to sell the strategy piece. But we quickly realized, since we're working with early stage companies, they can't really afford to just buy a really nice PowerPoint deck. If you're Series B, Series C, Series D, yeah, you can work with someone who's giving you an awesome doc, you know, document that just lives in a Google Drive folder yeah. somewhere. But when you're early stage, you really want to be working with people who will help move the ball forward. So then we started thinking about what assets might be helpful. We could do sales deck. But the problem is when you're early stage, having this public point of reference becomes such a good win for the whole team that everyone can look at the homepage and know exactly this is how we're currently positioning ourselves, the current value propositions related to our product, who we're for, versus if you did it in a sales deck, it kind of gets hidden away and not all the teams have this constant access unless they're watching you know, the recordings of the sales calls to see how it's being adjusted. So that that's like the more strategic answer. The more tactical answer is mm -hmm. that when we first got started, we were trying to get clients we were trying to demonstrate our expertise of how we think about positioning. And so we started doing audits of people's homepages to reverse engineer. Can we figure out how they're positioned based just what's on the homepage? And so you don't really get access to sales decks very easily to be auditing those to show, you know, but everyone's homepage is public. So the first way we got clients at the beginning, we would take a different startup each day and we would essentially audit their page and say, who is their target customer? Is it clear or not? How do they solve their problems? What are the problems they're solving? And the vast majority of companies that we would do this for, we realized that they didn't really have any pertinent information at all on the homepage. No idea what problem they solved, no idea how they solved it, no idea who it's for. And it was loosely just these large outcome business, you know, statements like we'll increase your revenue, you know, 5x ROI and, and vague stuff that frankly hides all the cool differentiation of the product and the company. Uh, the reason that we think that they should be trying to get traction in the first place is, is for the cool thing they've built and how they solve the problem. So that's that's a longer answer, but it's it's a little combination of those two things. Yeah, and I think a lot of us know you for your hot takes and, and breakdowns of homepages and what works, what doesn't work, and so on. So that actually takes me to my next question, and that is, 
what do you think are the most common issues with how companies are positioning themselves and, and most importantly, how they talk about their business on their home pages? Um, can you think of any, apart from the vague language, uh, which all of us in, in software as a service uh, know about, what else could you think of as like most common issues? The two biggest ones that if startups just fixed these, the pages would be so much better. And they're actually solved, more, one of them is more solved at the strategy level, and the other one is more of just a tweak of how you talk about it. The tweak of how you talk about it is just flip-flopping the order. So this is something that anyone who's listening, if they go and do this on their page right now, the page will be three to four times better than it is currently. Almost everyone leads with the outcome in the big headline and then the sub-headlines, like the little body text, they'll describe how they achieve the outcome. So they'll say, you know, save so much time. And then underneath they'll say, use our project management, you know, tool to manage your projects, things like that. And we say, just flip the order. Just put the product feature and capability, that's what we call those, of like what you actually do with it, lead with those and then follow with the outcome. So the traditional thing always people say is, sell the benefit not the feature nobody cares about features yeah. they care about benefits that's true if everyone knows what the product is so that advice actually doesn't come from b to b it comes from b to c where you're selling shoes you know lotion things that like i can look at it and know exactly what it is and yes then you don't want to just say here's these laces and here's the bottom of the sole and even though i think that is helpful sometimes but when everyone knows what a shoe is yeah you can be more outcome focused you can show the cool athletic yeah person running around in the Nike shoe and be like, I want to become like that person. But when you apply that to B2B and especially B2B startups that are doing something really radically new, a lot of times they're not just, here's another calendar app. We've duplicated Google Calendar. Yeah. They're yeah. doing something new. They're, they're com combining multiple different product categories. They're solving a unique problem. And so if you just lead with the outcome, when people read websites, they're not actually really reading them. They're scanning them. They jump from big headline to big headline to big headline and often don't read the thing underneath. And so when everyone leads with the outcome and the outcomes are these high level business ones of increase your revenue, save time, reduce risk, you automatically blend in with every other company in existence. Even the ones that you're not competing with, you suddenly look just like them. When everyone says increase revenue, yeah. right, you've removed all the important stuff. And you can do it in so many different ways. Like increased revenue is literally like every app exists to help you improve your bottom line. So exactly. And so uh, we, we have this concept we talk about like multi order benefits, which is like the first order benefit of any product is the immediate outcome of using it. So if I use Asana, maybe the first outcome that happens is I'm more organized. So that's like the differentiated benefit of Asana that not every product in the world could say. But if I say, well, if I'm more organized, then I can work faster, which means I'll ship more features, which means I'll make customers more happy, which will increase word of mouth, which will bring in new customers and ultimately increase revenue. So now we're seven layers away from what the product actually does. And we've removed all that differentiation to lead with this big piece. So the quick fix is just flip the order, lead with the product capability and the feature, and then support it with the outcome that it's going to drive. It's a lot more believable. It's really helpful with startups, especially. The second big problem is the bigger, more deeper strategy level is that startups raise money from venture capital firms and they sell a billion dollar vision to the VCs in order to get the money. So they say, we're going to dominate these five industries 
you know, 100 plus use cases that we're going to be the great solution for. Awesome. Great. That can be your 10 year vision, but you don't go from zero to 10, you know, in one year, you actually kind of have to sequence your way there. So what we always see happening is founders will position the product as if they're the 500 million ARR company when they're maybe doing 500,000. And so they'll try to speak to 10 industries at once in you know a vast grouping of use cases, different departments. And so when you try to speak to all of them at once, you actually, it's, it's, it, it's impossible, right? Like if I'm trying to write a letter yeah. to my wife and my grandma and my coworker, I have to use such vague language to speak to them all at once so people don't really get it. And it, it doesn't actually resonate with any of them. So for us, we're like, you actually probably have to make some decisions. And the perfect example is Jeff Bezos and Amazon. People forget that at one point, the headlines about Amazon were, is Amazon going to be able to take down Barnes & Noble? That was Amazon's biggest competitor at the beginning because they had focused on just solving selling books. Long before they were going to sell everything possible, they just focused on books. And so everyone was like, there's this new startup that's going to take on the giant Barnes & Noble. And now we think about it, and it's so silly because Amazon is a thousand times bigger than Barnes yeah. & Noble ever was. And Jeff Bezos in the early days, there's videos of him you can watch when he's in the Barnes & Noble era, even before that. And he says, we're going to sell everything you can imagine. But he publicly positioned around books to win that market and then use the success in the small market to layer on adjacent markets that ultimately grow the business. So the, the, tricky, the tricky thing is when you're early stage and you want to get to the end result, that ends up screwing over all your messaging and making it uh, effectively unpositioning your company so that no one knows what you do. Yeah, and it's, it's really important also that people don't trust what you say. They also ask you to provide social proof, provide proof that you actually can do what you say. So if you say you do everything and you're everything to everyone, you're most likely no one's going to believe you. But what you said actually makes a lot of sense because I don't know when it was, maybe six months ago or so, we actually did this a similar exercise with our own um, our own homepage where we were like, okay, instead of instead of focusing on all the, of these vague benefits like you know improving your bottom line and bringing you more revenue and so on, we're just gonna say what we do, which is we provide you with B2B data. And when we did that, we saw a 40% increase in assisted conversions. It was literally that simple. We just simplified the message a lot. Now we we did some some testing with message testing apps and basically saw okay users actually want to know um, what am I buying, so yeah what you said makes a lot of sense, but how do you actually come to the right message like how does your message creation process look like how do you for example how do you work with these founders that sometimes might not even know what their usp is what am i selling what what am i solving for and what is that unique feature that i want to put on my homepage? do you have a preferred process do you have a way you do that we do so the first thing we try to figure out is who do you want to position for so every call that we like the first workshop we run with any of these companies we're effectively just asking them all about the business. We're asking them go-to-market questions, revenue questions, what types of customers are coming through the door, how they're acquiring customers, what the different customer segments contribute in terms of overall revenue, like is there one group that really likes it? And then we're looking if they have multiple products, we're looking across the products to be like, are most people coming for all these products? Are they coming for one of them? 
are they sequenced in a certain way? Like, do they buy this one and then they usually upsell that one? So we're just trying to get a, a lay of the land. And then we ask them to give us a pretty in-depth product demo. And the funny thing is that we used to just ask founders about the customer segments, like directly. We would say, you know, list all your customer segments. And the founders would just list all the hypothetical ones, right? They're like, well, mm -hmm. it could be this industry and this. And then what we realized is like so much of that is just fantasy and fiction of what like wish fulfillment. They wish that they had those customers, but they might not really. So we realized the best way to learn about a founder's true market is to just ask them about the product. Because when they get in the product and they start explaining it, they can't help but explain it as if they were talking to one of those segments. Because even like, like take a product like Figma, clearly made for product designers primarily, but it's also used by product managers, it's used by engineers, all different people use Figma. But when you explain Figma, most of the time people will do it at the level of product designers because that's how Figma is positioned. Even if you're not even explaining it, like if you haven't made that conscious decision, when you explain it, you're like, well, it does wireframing, it does prototyping, and like these other stakeholders might actually never care about those features, and they would care more about other stuff in Figma, but you just start talking about the product that way. So we have all these questions about the business, about the go-to-market strategy, all those things. We, we get a really deep understanding of the product. And then on the back end, what we're trying to figure out are what are the potential ways we could position this product? And there's two different buckets that it can fall in, and we call these contextual positioning or competitive positioning. It's really the difference of, are you positioned against something? Like, don't do this thing anymore, use us instead. Or are you positioned for something? Hey, we're the easiest way to do this workflow or this use case. And all positioning really falls into those two buckets. And so for a, a company like Slack, in their early days, they were positioned against email. They said, Slack replaces email inside your company. So picking that enemy that everyone understands gives this quick frame of reference to position the product in the minds of the potential customers. That they're like, oh, so Slack is kind of loosely in the bucket of communication and messaging back and forth, and I'm interested to learn more. Same thing, Loom, the, the video recording software. It, their phrase was like, loom on meetings off so they positioned against meetings don't have a meeting send a loom so don't go left go right on the flip side when you have this contextual positioning you have uh you're basically positioned for a workflow so calendly it's something like you know their current thing is like easy scheduling ahead or something and they were positioned around this use case of scheduling meetings online so they're not saying don't schedule meetings online use calendly they're saying we make that process so much easier so at the end of that first workshop we might generate five different options and it might be abundantly clear to everyone on the call which is the right one sometimes it's not and it's like three that you could go either way and ultimately what they choose they have to choose right we're not we're not going to take equity in the company we're not going to be in charge of their go-to-market strategy so they have to make the decision we give them our best recommendation we think you should do the first one based on everything you've told us but ultimately they have to choose and then from there we start to build value propositions around that audience and so it becomes a lot easier to explain the product when you pick an audience like with the figma example if i'm saying what are the three most interesting things let's say figma when it came out what would be the three most big selling product like uh, parts of figma to a designer you'd probably talk about the collaboration fact that you could have multiple people designing in the same file when in the old days you'd be an illustrator or whatever and and you basically send the file back and forth super annoying the fact that it's cloud-based, it's not like a big bulky program, you could do it in the browser, that might be another one. So just by choosing the audience, figuring out which parts of the product to talk about becomes insanely easy. So all the hard work is in that initial strategic decision 
And then it really is just a question of which features, knowing they're, they, they're not going to have the mental bandwidth when they're on the website to read about 25 features. They might see three, and they're just going to scan them. So what are going to be the most compelling things about the product in a 15-second scan? Like we have these three sections where we talk about feature one, feature two, feature three, and we call it like the 15-second product demo. It's basically like if I had to demo the product in 15 seconds, what am I showing? Five seconds on this, five seconds on that, five seconds on that. So that's like loosely how we go at a high level across that that initial journey. Okay. And then how do you know if it's working? Like how do you test it? Do you see customers' reaction? Do you use message testing? Do you, you know, uh, does voice of customer come into play in any part of your process? So because we do just a small slice of it, we used to do much more in-depth, hands-on research. We would go listen to the calls. We would do the voice of customer research. We would do some market segmentation. The problem was by doing that, our price became so much more expensive and we were pricing ourselves out of early stage. So early stage are a drastically underrepresented, underserved group. There's a lot of yeah. positioning experts, narrative design experts who focus on late stage, high growth startups that have a ton of money. But when you're early stage, you just can't afford to be paying other people to do the research for you. And in reality, you shouldn't be paying other people to do the research for you. You should be doing it yourself. You should be having those sales calls, listening for patterns and things like that, because you have to be close to the to, to the product and to the market to be able to get this thing off the ground. So we don't do any of the research. We only extract it from the founders that we work with together. And then on the flip side, you should not be paying people to test this. You basically test it by putting it out on your website, giving the pitch in the sales calls, uh, you can maybe run some message tests that are cheaper if you can find ways around this. If you have customers currently, you could show it to them, get the reaction and stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, the best test is putting it out there, seeing how people react, getting it on sales calls, giving that narrative pitch, and then and then seeing is this working or not. And really, early stage, it's all kind of your best hypothesis at the moment. It's like a positioning hypothesis. So we say you should be switching and and pivoting like probably every three months, maybe three to six in early stage. So if they work with us, it's like okay everyone align around this positioning because even say you're setting it up an outbound sales program any real channel go to market channel is going to take multiple months to even see if it works at all in the first like month or month and a half you're not even going to really know is this not working because the message isn't working or is it the wrong target or is it the wrong subject lines like just getting a go-to-market motion off the ground takes like three months really no matter what it is getting clients from linkedin is going to take that long uh, probably longer even Cold email is going to take that long. So we're like, stick to this for the next quarter and see what happens. If you focus the company around this, point in that direction, does it seem like at the end of the three months, people are really resonating and you want to lean in more, maybe tweak it a little bit, but really hone in on that positioning? Or has it been banging your heads against the wall for the three months? And at that point, you probably got to go back and revisit some of the assumptions that you had made to arrive at this positioning. Maybe something's wrong about the product. Maybe it's the wrong market segment. Because ultimately, that's what we're working with in early stages is this loose collection of qualitative data to arrive at what we think is the best way to position for the next quarter or so. Okay, great. And what about, I'm sure there are, there are many companies that you've worked with that don't have a real differentiator. They have a me too product. How do you go about messaging and positioning for those kinds of products where you need to find the differentiator, you need to find what they do better than someone else. And there are so many other things apart from the feature that they might do better. But how do you go about finding that 
unique differentiator that will make someone buy this product versus something more established, let's say? Yeah, that's a great question. So in general, if you're a startup and you don't have a great differentiator on the product level, you have three other options. So, and I'm trying to pull up a diagram that I made at one point just to reference this as we're chatting through it. But essentially, if you don't have a 10X product feature, which a lot of times startup won't, your other options are you compete on price. You can say, we're significantly cheaper than the market leader. So like take a Fathom as a video recording software. We use Fathom as a two person consultancy because we don't want to shell out the money to get Gong. So how does Fathom carve out a spot from Gong? Gong is big, bulky, expensive for large sales teams, big companies. And they come along and say, well, we do similar things for a fraction of the price. So you could compete on price. If you can't compete on product, you can also compete on your actual distribution strategy. So like if you take Zoom, Zoom was was facing, I'm trying to remember exactly which company was the big incumbent, but pre-pandemic, Zoom was not the video chatting incumbent. People were using bigger, bulkier enterprise solutions that most, mostly were sold top down. They would reach out to the big company, try to get them on board and then sell it throughout the organization. Zoom comes along and has this crazy distribution strategy where they say you get 40, 45 minutes free or 40 minutes free, whatever it was. Um, and they, it's, it was almost a little shady how they did it. But like when you would send a Zoom link, you would download the whole program and install on your computer without even you really asking to do that. But they, yeah. I, like, they were a little sketchy about it, but it actually helped the product spread like crazy. And so then in Zoom, they completely displaced all the other incumbents by shooting to the top. So if you don't have a product differentiator, you don't have a price differentiator and you don't have a distribution differentiator, you only have one more option. The only option that you have left is the segmentation angle. You say, yeah, great. You know, whichever company, Calendly is for everyone. It's this giant thing. There's another company called You Can Book Me. They're a Calendly competitor, very much like a Me Too product. But what they did is they focused on a segment that Calendly doesn't really care about. And it was this group of people who needed to have calendar links that were automatically changing the language based on the people coming in to book meetings. So it was like for a really specific group of companies that were booking meetings internationally across multiple languages and were highly underserved by Calendly. And I think they've, they're bootstrapped and they've made it to, I think, 5 million ARR in not that much time. So they've carved out a niche by segmenting from the big market and underserved market. So. When we're talking with companies, we're basically evaluating those different strategies. And nine times out of 10, we end up recommending a segmentation strategy because they don't have any of those other three. That's that's great. Thank you so much for that breakdown. That's really helpful. I'm sure all of our listeners are going to find that helpful as well. Um, okay, so I think one more thing that I'm pretty sure you've you've probably faced uh, when you're working with the startups is selling to bigger enterprises versus small ones. And I think everyone wants to go up market, right? Because it's, everyone thinks it's, it's less clients, more money. Um, let's take those that actually can serve these like bigger customers. How do you go about messaging for smaller customers, like smaller, um, companies versus bigger ones? And, I'll ask my other questions later. Let's 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 hop uh, onto this one first. So here's the the really hot take. It actually doesn't change depending on either. What we have seen time and time again, enterprise deals always start with one person. 
There is rarely a time where you sell to the whole buying committee up front. There will be times when large companies will say, we need to get an ERP for the whole 50,000 person company, and they start shopping. They're not going to buy your rinky-dink startups product. They just aren't. Not in that way. So for the rest of the startups that want to sell into the enterprise, what almost always happens is someone in a single department hears about the solution because they're close enough to the problem that they are looking for a product to solve it. And then they somehow land on your site or you get in front of them, maybe through outbound, and they start the conversation. So every sales deal almost always starts with a champion, one specific person in a specific department looking to solve a specific problem. With enterprise, it then the reason the enterprise sales cycles are six to 12 months, sometimes even 12 to 18 or it can be two years long is because yeah, they have long. to, yeah, they have to get that single champion to then bring in all the other stakeholders. And so then you have the whole multi-threading conversation of how does the outbound salesperson, the AE, how are they going to loop in? And they're, they're guiding the sales process. Okay, well, we're going to have to probably bring in finance. We're going to bring in procurement. And what are the other stakeholders? You got to get this person. But at the very beginning, they still had to convince that champion to get on the call and to, to click the book a demo button from your website or wherever it is. And so the biggest mistake we see is when people are selling to enterprise companies, they're thinking about the ultimate decision maker who might be the CFO. But CFOs are not, especially CFOs of enterprise companies, they're not spending their time shopping for software. They're just not. The board would fire them if they found out CFO, you've met with five AEs this week and you're spending all this time scrolling on SaaS companies' websites, looking through their product. Like, what are you doing? We got a 50,000 person company to manage. So that person would lose their job. So they're not the target for your homepage messaging. The target is for the champion. And, and people always swing to the opposite end. They're like, so does that mean I have to target the end user? It's like, no. You probably, it's gonna be someone who's probably a director or a VP who is still close enough to actually know what problem they're trying to solve and shopping for products to solve it. Because that's the other big hot take of ours is people say, the enterprise doesn't shop for products, they shop for outcomes. And I'm like, no, 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 that is not true. They want an outcome and then they look for a product to get them the outcome. They are shopping for products and they will do their internal diagnosis to figure out what type of product they think is gonna solve for this outcome. If it's the sales, giant you know cro and they think if we had better visibility over what's happening in all of our sales deals we would hit this thing we probably need to get some sort of sales visibility tool and they maybe end up buying something like clary which brings it all together and shows them but they decided internally what product they think is going to solve for that outcome and then they started shopping for it so to meet them where they're at you have to speak to that champion not necessarily an end user could be a director could be a vp and then even even more so I hear time and time again, well, we sell the enterprise, ultimate buying person is the CEO. So we gotta write the homepage for them. They're not gonna land on the page. And there's only one of them per company. If you have a 10,000 person company, do you know how many exponentially more directors there are? If you can't get through to the one CEO and that's who you wrote all your messaging for, that deal's dead, dead in the water. Versus if you wrote it for the director level person in the language that they would care about to get them, have the ball rolling to start bringing in the other buying center, if you don't get one director, no worries. You got 
500 more that you can work through across this giant enterprise account. And any one of them might be able to get you the buying process going off the ground. So obviously a lot of, uh, a lot of hot takes in there, but that, that's kind of how we view it. And so it, it doesn't actually differ that much whether you're looking at a small company or a big company. You have to target the person who is shopping for products to solve the problem. No, it makes it makes so much sense. I mean, ultimately, we're we're selling to people. We're not selling to companies. Yep. So you always have to sell to a person, regardless of if it's if it's a ten thousand employee company or a smaller one. However, I do want to ask you one more question. When you think about enterprises, and and this is like I remember, I was as we were going up market, I was um, researching our enterprise customers, trying to figure out if they all fit in the same bucket and follow the same pattern in terms of awareness. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you what my uh, my resolution was at the end, but I would like to hear your opinion. Do you think that as you sell to bigger companies, most of them are already problem aware or solution aware, or do you think? it doesn't matter. Like, again, the size doesn't matter and they could be unaware as well and you need to do some education. Like, do you think there's a pattern, a common pattern that when it comes to company size in terms of their awareness level? I think it all depends, right? If you're talking about enterprise solutions, like Asana, I was listening to a podcast, one of the early Asana, um, I can't remember if it was like the VP of product or someone was very early on. And they said for the initial stage of the company, they were selling on task management, project management, until everyone gained awareness that this is what Asana does. And then they started tying that to a higher level goal, which was like goal setting OKRs. And then after that, they eventually tied it to an even higher level of we provide visibility into what's happening into your org. And they, the guy said, we couldn't have led with the visibility thing upfront. We had to go through those years where we were talking about just beating the drum on task management, project management, so people knew who we were, that they had a bucket to place us in. And then ultimately, they would sell this larger solution down the line. But when we're talking about multi-department problems, like enterprise problems, a lot of time, they're not necessarily aware unless they've done like true root cause analysis to drill down, why does this keep happening? And so I think that startups, especially if they're trying to sell these big companies, they probably do have to do some education the question is, where is the best place for the education? Is it on the homepage? Or is it probably higher up the funnel in the thought leadership podcasts you run, in the founders posts on LinkedIn that's going to all these people, you know, at the events, the conferences you're speaking at, to beat the drum on here's the deep level problem we're solving that you might have as an enterprise company, rubbing shoulders with these executives and things in all these different places. That's where you sell the problem. The homepage as a demand gen source is just a little silly, especially if it's enterprise. Demand gen homepages are like you're selling a D to C direct to consumer product on Instagram. And you know, it's some solving one little thing and it lives on the homepage. And that's kind of the end to end sales pitch. That makes a lot of sense. But usually with enterprises, it doesn't make sense to try to do that demand gen on the homepage. And to your question about like, based on company sizes that raise or lower problem awareness, I think it's totally dependent on what the problem is. Uh, what industries of enterprises, because not, we talk about enterprises if it's a segment, like, it's really not, right? Like there's there's so it's many, not. there's so many it's different not. enterprises in oil and gas enterprise versus talking about Snowflake, the, you know, SaaS company, yeah. like they're in different universes. And just because they're both, you know, 
many tens of thousands of employees does not make them the same. Yeah, I think we suffer from this almost like a curse of knowledge. All of us working in software as a service, we think that everyone thinks like us. Like I'm researching oil and gas at this moment, and there's so many boomers that are not even on LinkedIn. And how would you reach those people? You wouldn't reach them on LinkedIn. You need to find a different channel. So I do agree with you. That was the conclusion I came to actually was like, there's no common pattern. You need to go industry by industry and really understand these these customers, which is, I think when it comes to selling to enterprises, why ABM has gained so much popularity because it's, it's really on a case by case basis and you need to find what works for each of those. And also to your point um, about awareness of enterprises, right? The, the funny thing is we overestimate because we're in the LinkedIn SaaS software bubble, we overestimate how much of the rest of the world is aware of the companies that we think are so cool and, and hot, you know? And I actually, we, we looked it up yeah. at one point, Slack, because people, I, I was taking shots at Slack's messaging on their homepage. I was like, they, I don't know if they yeah, still Yeah, I have, saw that. I saw that. Yeah. There, there were so many that did not agree. So many they did. <laughs> so it was, many, It was a yeah. very interesting comment section. It really was. So like I was saying right now, I, I don't know if they still have it, but Slack, had, it, when I posted this about two months ago, they had... The homepage said, made for people, built for productivity. Connect the right people, find anything you need, automate the rest. And so right there, we're like, this is described, this could be describing an infinite number of different companies, right? It's so vague. No one knows what this is. And then so many comment after comment after comment. Slack's so big. Who cares? They don't care. They're doing great. Like, why? it doesn't even matter what they put on their homepage. That was the sentiment. Well, Slack, the funny thing is Slack considers their TAM 1 billion knowledge workers. How many people do they have? I think they have 40 million. So they're hitting 4% of their total addressable market. The biggest competitor, Teams, has 280 million users. So there's still 680 million people not using Slack or Teams. When all those rest of the people that are probably up for grabs for either Microsoft or Slack, is it going to help them understand Slack to buy it, not being in our Silicon Valley bubble, coming from the outside, seeing made for people, build for productivity, connect this super vague message? I don't think it is. I think that there's a huge number of people who have no, have never even heard of Slack outside our little bubble, and they're not doing them any favors by giving them this vague, like, we're this big, super cool brand message, which you know everyone loves to do once they pass Series C or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I like, I work in SaaS, but most of my friends do not. And honestly, none of them know about Slack. Yep. And they're still knowledge workers. And I was showing them how I, I know um, one friend was starting freelancing and I was showing her how Slack works because she's never used it before. She didn't need it um, in her job. So, yeah, you're totally right. Uh, I think sometimes we either underestimate or overestimate our buyer. And it's really important to really get to know them and, and do all of that research. Um, there's one more thing I actually want to ask you, which is, I think it was at some point, it was a, it was something that was happening with everyone trying to build their own category. What's your take on that? When should you just give people a frame of reference versus when should you create your own category? And especially... When I'm seeing companies wanting to create their own category, but just for the sake of it, it's not like they're offering something new that they cannot fit in that existing category. It's just 
they want to differentiate based on category. So what's your take on that? Yeah, so it's really funny. The group of people pushing create your own category, when you really press them, every example they share is almost always a subcategory of an existing category. So pure category creation, I am not convinced even exists. And also I, I think that over time, categories are created, but not by one company. Like if we think about ride sharing, and, and someone could fact check me on this. I don't know if this is true. I don't know that either Lyft or Uber coined that term. It slowly emerged as these companies were coming up and Uber and Lyft became the dominant ride sharing companies. But I don't think they were the ones who came up with it. And I could be wrong in that. But even, even just taking out of that, I, I use a silly example. If you're the person who's first releasing spicy mustard, right? So that's a, the, the spicy mustard. And you say, before you've th called it spicy mustard, but that's what you're selling. And you say, do we want to pick an existing category or create our own? The, the two decisions there, if I say spicy mustard, what does that mean? It means I have a shelf at the grocery store where I live. I live next to all the other mustards and I'm spicy mustard and I shine out, like stick out like a sore thumb. Oh, interesting, spicy mustard or hot honey is another big one. Really popular these days. Next to the regular honey, here's the hot honey. Wow, what a differentiator. Versus, let's say I was like, no, we don't want to be boxed in by mustard. We're doing our own thing. We're special sauce. It's a new special category. What you effectively would need to do is get other sauce brands to make special sauce versions to solidify that this actually is a category. Like the signs that a category has been created is when you're not the only one doing it. So you would need to get other people to get on board with this category to legitimize it. You would need to then convince the grocery stores to make a new shelf for the special sauce category because you don't want to be mixed in with the mustard people. You got to have your own thing that you're going to dominate. And so getting those two things right, getting all the distribution to get everyone on board with your new thing and getting other people to make their own versions of it to solidify the category. It's just too big of a task for any single company to really do well, especially an early stage one that isn't sitting on $100 million of VC money. So it's almost always better to A, either choose an existing category and modify it, or you could be kind of category agnostic and just not actually say it, but be hyper clear about what the product does and the use cases that it serves. So for example, there's a company called Tango and they make uh, like how-to guides where you can basically just hit the Chrome extension and then if I want to show you how to add a contact to our CRM, I just click around in the CRM, do it. It records all my steps. With AI, it spits out all the individual you know, writing to explain and, and gives you like a, a shareable PDF immediately or, or link, you know, public link. Um, and it even lets you like go through and it shows you where on the screen and stuff like that. What's the product category for that? I don't know. I, I don't know if it's really solidified, but that's such yeah. a specific use case, specific product capability that I could recommend that all over the place. And then, you know what? If a lot of people do that, maybe we'll see the product category emerge. Like interactive product demos. I don't know who coined that term, but there's a lot of companies doing it. And it kind of, the label emerged and it's still up for grabs who's really gonna own the category. There's a lot of good players like Nomadic and Storylane and all these different people. They're all fighting for the market leader position and the product category is solidifying. But I don't think any of them were like, I'm gonna set out to create this category 
they were making a tool that did something very specific for a use case that solved a very specific problem. And then the market is coming around it. So I think it's a huge waste of time, money, and energy for founders to devote trying to create a category. Uh, some Maybe there's some exceptions, but that's, a, in general, my hot take on the on the matter. Yeah, I remember when I was looking for a tool like Nevada and Storylane, it was around two years ago. It's now two years since we've had interactive. I didn't even know how to search for it. Yeah. I was literally, I knew about Pendo, which was in-app tour, and I was searching for in-app tours that could be accessed elsewhere or yep. things like that because I didn't know about the the category. I didn't know how to look for it. I just knew the problem that I needed, like video was taking too long. I needed some something that I need to do, no code. And yeah, that's how I found it. I, I actually, I think I found a company that did it, wrote to the person, what do you use? And then searched for all the alternatives. It was Reprise, I think. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're um, one of those for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, and then that's how I found out about it. Uh, I think you're you're completely right, but I think it's like so many people think that creating their own category makes them different, uh, just because they they say there's something that doesn't exist um, at that point. I do have one more question before we end. Uh, actually, two more. This one and then the last one. Um, I know you have a lot of hot takes around features versus benefits versus outcomes or value um who do you recommend we, we okay so the outcomes we already covered what about features versus benefits what do you recommend is tackled on first especially on on things like the homepage, and when because it, it probably depends on on what kind of buyers you're you're targeting yeah so when do you think it makes makes sense to lead with a feature yeah i think i always pair features and capabilities together so like our loose definition like if i was going to walk through feature capability benefit and then probably outcome is like to me the distinction between a benefit and an outcome is kind of like those multi-order things i was talking about where a benefit that cascades into another benefit that cascades into another benefit ultimately will ladder up to a business outcome some sort of kpi metric that the company is trying to move right but those kpis and, and those okrs or whatever are so far away from what the product actually does that it, it almost never makes sense to lead with an outcome in any circumstance that comes up in the sales process when you're trying to convince the cfo who's gotten pulled into the sales process and they're saying well is this thing going to actually boost the needle on any of our the, the key metrics that we're going after and it's like yeah let's let's talk through with this talented salesperson who can make those logical jumps and actually convince someone that yes if we buy asana we're going to see revenue go up after a year which is like maybe yeah uh, <laughs> questionable but so when we walk it back we're talking about features capabilities and benefits i'll take a simple example let's talk about a feature like notifications notifications the feature so the feature is like usually one or two words. It's like, what am I actually interacting with on the page? Is it a dashboard? Is it a, you know, some sort of table? Is it notifications? Is it a comment box? Like all these types of things are the feature. The capability is like, what do I do with it? So the notification capability might be see when other people have sent you a message in Slack. That's a notification. That's the capability that I do with it. What's the benefit? The benefit is so that you don't miss someone's message. It's the first order outcome of using the notifications feature. So for us, it's really a question of clarity. Which one leading will actually unlock the idea quickest? We think nine times out of 10, leading with the capability will make it clearest the fastest. 
And a lot of times, if you have a really interesting capability, the benefit is so obvious, you don't even have to say it. So I'll give an example. My older brother used to work for this med tech company and they made these cables for hospital beds. So in a hospital, when nurses are moving patients from room to room, they have to move the bed and a lot of times in a hurry and the cable gets yanked out of the wall. It's a big, expensive, hard to replace cable. And when it's getting yanked out of the wall, you know, 10, 15 times a day or whatever, across thousands of beds, they're replacing these. It's a pretty big issue. So the company that he worked for, they made magnetic cables like MagSafe on your Apple MacBook, you could just pull them and they just pop off. So even if you yanked as hard as you want, it would never actually break the cable because they just magnetize. So he would literally just walk into the hospitals, get whoever he was trying to pitch to, and they would say, well, what do you do? He'd be like, well, you know the, the nurse bed cables? And he'd be like, yeah. Like this, we make a replacement. He'd hold it up and he'd open it. And just showing the capability, that's all it was, right? The magnet is the feature. Pulling it apart without any problem, that's the capability. He didn't then have to say, let me try to explain why this would be valuable to you. It was so obvious. It was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. You need to talk to my boss. Let's go. Like, we got to get this for every bed in the hospital. So a lot of capabilities, when they're solving a real problem, just seeing them is enough. And you don't have to treat your end buyer or user like they're a child and say, wouldn't this be so, like Tesla's, auto driving feature, right? Like total autopilot on the highway. It drives for you, it speeds up. Like you don't have to spell out, wouldn't it be cool if you didn't have to drive and the car drove for you? Like you don't have to like yeah. lay it all out. The, the so what question is answered purely by the capability that you've put on display. And so a lot of people will say, well, what if my product doesn't have anything like that? And I'm like, maybe you should go back to the drawing board and fix your product, fix the yeah. product right? Fix your product. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, cool. Well, I think I have one more question for you, and that's uh, the question that we always like to end on, which is what are the things you would tell marketers to stop doing, and what is the one thing you would tell them to start doing? I love that. So I would say stop thinking that enterprise sales is selling to a giant building. And like what you said, Start thinking that you are selling to people, humans. And these humans care about problems being solved with tools that can solve the problem. Like our, the thesis of our company is more people will buy your product if they understand what the product is. And it's crazy to say that that is a controversial statement in 2024 in the world of SaaS. It still is. But I, it is. It still is. <laughs> it really it is. is. I remember when I was starting marketing like seven years ago, I was going to pages because I started with like copywriting. Yep. And I was just going to pages and wondering like what it is that this company does. Like, you need to dig into it. You need to go to the product section, solution section, and then try and piece all those things together. But yeah, it still happens. Um, and I think everyone just assumes that everyone's a marketer and they just have the the time to read and listen to podcasts and figure out what they do. I don't know. And Thank I, you, Anthony. I laugh so hard too, because when I say those things and I'm like, do you think more people will buy it if they understand it or not? And people will be like, well, do you have data to back that up? And I'm like, think with your brain. Like, Hey, do you want to like, buy what I'm yeah. buy? What's under this blanket? It's a thousand dollars. It's like, what's under the blanket? And I'm like, it's an outcome. 
It's going to increase your revenue. You want to buy it? They're like, just show me what's under the blanket. And I'm like, no, nah, you, you're going to want data to prove that you'd want to know what's under the blanket. Like, come, it's so silly. Yeah, and I think a lot of times you just need to ask yourself, like, how do I buy and how do I learn about products? How do I want things to, yeah, how do I make the decision and become the champion in my own company? I think that's, that's going to help a lot of people. Great. Well, thank you so much for for being my guest today. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was really great to meet you um, in person instead of just following you on LinkedIn. Um, if anyone wants to follow Anthony on LinkedIn and get more of his hot takes, just yeah, type his name um, and you'll find him there. Um, okay, thank you so much and uh, speak to you hopefully soon. Yep, thanks for having me.